your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You be seated. It's good to have Lindley here with us from out of town. Brother Bridges, good to have you. Nice to meet you. Before we read Romans chapter 12, today we just wanted to make some introductory remarks, but today we are going to start a sermon series um, entitled The Beauty of the Body, God's People Walking in Their Gifts and Calling. And this will be, the Lord willing, a four to five week sermon series. The Holy Spirit reserves a right to change things and change plans, and He can do that. But I just wanted to introduce this, this series, if you allow me to do that, before I get into today's sermon, and explain to you where I'm coming from, uh, the, the need um, for this subject matter, and um, just express to you what the Lord has laid upon my heart and share my heart uh, upon this subject. <clears throat> How many of you know you individually are a part of the body of Christ? As a child of God, you are members individually of the body of Christ. And as a child of God, you no longer live unto yourself. You no longer live unto yourself. Jesus is Savior and Lord, meaning He is Master. He is the Master over my life. He is Lord over my life. And so I no longer live unto myself, as that song just said. My life is not my own. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a beautiful thing that happens, that when you are born into the kingdom of God, not only are you generally placed into the kingdom of God, but you are placed into the body of Christ, this mystical body of Christ, how that every single Christian throughout all of time and throughout all the world is connected because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. And you have a special place in the body of Christ. And the analogy is made throughout the New Testament by Paul. And he calls the church... Jesus' body and Jesus is the head. And just as the body has all kinds of various members and different systems that, that make the body function, so are we individually in the body of Christ. And so as a child of God, you no longer live unto yourself, you live unto the Lord, but also in relation to people, in particular in relation to the people of God, you neither do you live unto yourself. The New Testament, the New Testament is written in the context of a community of believers called the church. All of these letters are written to a group of believers. There is no such thing as a maverick Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian that lives unto themselves, isolated from the body of Christ. That is absolutely foreign to the New Testament idea of what being a Christian is and being a part of the body of Christ. You are universally a part of the body, and then specifically you are a part of a local body, which in this instance is called Grace River Chapel. And it is the dictates of the New Testament and the precedent set that you cannot serve the Lord without it being in the context of a community of believers. If you are a Christian, you will find a group of believers that you can be a part of. To be to yourself 
and not be a part of a group of believers is completely foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament believers, the first century church, they flocked to one another because they craved that fellowship. And so this beautiful thing occurs in that we're no longer isolated unto ourselves. We live unto the Lord, but we also live unto one another because each of you brings something to the body of Christ that the, another person does not bring, and God, by his grace, has appointed you in that particular position with a particular gift and a particular calling. And as you look at the local church, this church in particular, there is one disadvantage as a new church there is one disadvantage as a new church, which is you're starting from scratch. A disadvantage to starting a brand new church is that you're starting from scratch. Just bear with me. I'm setting this up. There is no money. Thankfully, we got some money now. There's no established ministries. There's no organization. There's no facilities. We're unknown to the community. There's no history or past experience to draw from in relation to this specific church and precedent that's been set. It's a newborn baby, if you will, that needs to be nurtured and needs to grow and learn and develop because we do not view the church as an individual but as a group of people. And so this new church called Grace River Chapel, <coughs> it's a baby, if you will. It's a baby church. And though it's composed of many veteran, mature Christians, this is a new church, a new work, a new calling that the Lord has called us all together in this very unique time and season and point of time. And the Lord has called us to a particular calling. So that is one disadvantage. You're starting from scratch. And one advantage, though, as a new church is that we are starting from scratch. We have the wonderful opportunity to build from the ground up and do things right. That is from a biblical foundation and perspective. <clears throat> there are no bad habits or precedents that have been set. We've been in existence for two months. There are not yet any hills of tradition for us to fight and die on with the mantra, well, that's how we've always done it. Right? And these two, this advantage and this disadvantage of starting a new church, starting from, from scratch, it sets us up in a very unique situation. But this brings me to the purpose of this sermon series. We are a baby church if you will. And we're just getting our legs under us, if you will. And there are things to be done and things to be established and things to be facilitated and delegated. <clears throat> and it is my desire through this sermon series, which is birthed from the great necessity that the people of Grace River Chapel, that we function as a New Testament church, 
pursuant to the standards and norms of Holy Scripture. It is absolutely important that each of us individually understand our call and our place in the body of Christ. If you want this church to thrive and to grow and to be a blessing to you and to be a blessing to anybody that you bring, all of us have to come to this place with the understanding, I have a place in the body of Christ and I am not called to simply be an observer from the sidelines, but I am called to be an active participant in the body of Christ. And so this is a call to action. This this is us coming to the realization that there are many things that the Lord has blessed us with and many, many a great distance that he's brought us from, but there's still work to be done and there are still things for us to give ourselves to. And I want you to know as your pastor, as your pastor, I do not consider this church to be run by one man. It's not a one-man show. It is each and every one of you providing and meeting the needs of one another because I cannot meet all your needs. But if every person is playing their part, using their gifts, walking in the role and the calling that the Lord has called them to, there will not be a schism. There will not be any hurt in the body because each of us are looking out and caring for one another. And and I really, what I want to do is try to instill this in us, that we are called to be an active participant in the body of Christ universally, but in particular to this local body called Grace River Chapel. And I want you to know, the Lord has a place for you. The Lord has called you, and he has given you particular gifts that he wants to cultivate and grow, and most importantly, use you for his glory and for the edification of the people of God. That is what we're called to do, is to allow this body of people to glorify the head, which is Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we can edify and meet the needs of one another because we are walking in the Spirit of Christ. And so I want you to know, this series is not a self-serving message that is intended to get a bunch of volunteers to help me do stuff, okay? That is not my intention. My intention is that you would be blessed by walking and participating in your place in the body of Christ. And my desire is that Jesus would be glorified through your life individually. To one another, at your home, at your workplace, wherever it is. And it is through the church that you can cultivate and grow and be encouraged and develop maturity in Christ that can make you a blessing to everybody you come into contact with. That is what I want to be the result here of this series. That all of us would see the beauty of the body of Christ, that we are active participants and we would walk in the gifts and callings he's called us to because I can't do everything. No no one of you can do everything because I don't have all the gifts laid out in the word of God. But all of us collectively are a beautiful thing to behold. All of us collectively. And so nobody here is insignificant. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for one year or one decade. All of us have something we bring to the body of Christ that can glorify him and bring edification to one another. 
So very quickly, before we look at Romans 12, my goal is that this four-week series will produce several things in the life of this church. First and foremost, a white-hot devotion and love unto the Lord for His service. Number two, an increased love for the body of Christ. In the same way that every one of you woke up, you brushed your teeth, you combed your hair, you took a shower, you put on deodorant, you fed your body, you drank water, you, you fed and you nurtured and took care of your body because you love your body, I want us to come to that place where we love the people of God so much that we don't want to harm it. Because who wants to harm their own body in their right mind? Who wants to harm their own body? We take care of ourselves. We nurture ourselves. We dress ourselves up. We groom ourselves because we want to take care of it. And we would have, I hope, the desire to love the body in the same way. An increased awareness of our membership in the body. My desire is that you would have an increased awareness that you are not allowed to be an observer, but you're called to be a participant by the Lord and not just by me. Another, that the leadership would discover the gifts and callings of the members. There are some of you, I don't know everything there is to know about you, and I want to know what the Lord has called you to, what gifts he's given you what your, your talents and abilities are, what resources the Lord has put into your hands. And, and I can't know that unless we seek it out. And I want to, as your pastor, I want to be a part of the process to cultivate in your life the gifts of God. I want to understand and acknowledge and see what the Lord has called you to and it's the responsibility of me to allow the Lord to use you and not control everything and manipulate everything, but allow the Lord to use all of us. So I, as, a, as the leader, want to come to that knowledge of each individual. That we would respond to the command to glorify Jesus and serve the church by walking in our gifts and calling, and ultimately, that there would be no schism or break in this church body because we all mutually care one for another. Those are some of my hopes and desires and goals goals from this series, the beauty of the body, God's people walking in their gifts and calling. So if you looked at your bulletin, on January 12th, there is something called Find Your Place at GRC. That's January 12th. And on that day, we will be distributing to you two packets, two sources of information. The first packet is a new member's packet. The second packet is a volunteer commitment form. And in that first packet, it will be, among other things, it will include a questionnaire that will allow us to know your heart, allow you to share things concerning yourself that you can fill out on this questionnaire that, that otherwise we wouldn't know unless we sit down with you individually and learned a great deal about you so we can get a good understanding of each individual and maybe the gifts in their life. And, and also, there will be a volunteer commit, commitment form that we will hand out. And all this is, all this is, is just a form that lists all the avenues of ministry in which you can be involved. What we are asking as leadership is that you would find some place in this body of Christ to serve. Whether if it be an usher, a greeter, 
whether it be in the children's ministry, youth, young adults, media, music, whatever it is, all the multiple facets and multiple ministries representing this church, we want to provide an opportunity to you to respond and say, I want to serve the church in this capacity. And that's all that, that packet is. It's a commitment form where you will commit for one year that you will give your time, your efforts, your, 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 um, your uh, resources to that place of ministry, and it will allow you to be used in the Lord. Does that sound okay? Because there are some people, there are some people who want to do things in the church, but they don't want to go up to the pastor and say, can I do this? Right? First of all, maybe they're shy. Maybe they don't want to be rejected. Um, they, want, they don't want to be presumptuous. And so if we can provide to you, here is an open door, an opportunity for you to serve this church all you have to do is sign it, put your name on it, and you are here to help and to serve in that place of ministry. And so that is where we are at, and that is just some introductory remarks concerning this series, concerning the body of Christ, concerning our usage in the body of Christ. And so this brings us to Romans chapter 12. I don't believe I'm going to finish this sermon we're only looking at verses 1 and 2, and I don't intend to be long. But Romans 12, 1 and 2, before we start looking at Romans 12, 8, or 3 through 8, or 1 Corinthians 12, or Ephesians 4, that talks about the ministry gifts and the gifts of the Spirit and how we're used in the body, I want us to get down to the crux of the foundational principles of what will allow you, what will encourage you to serve the body of Christ. And we will take this from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Read with me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if you were to continue to read on verses 3 through 8, it talks about the grace given to Paul, the grace given to each member of the body of Christ, the measure of faith given to us, and that we should all, as members of the body, should function in such a way where we minister our gifts by the measure of faith that we have one to another. But before I even get into verses 3 through 8, the foundation of all of this, the foundation for Christian service is that you first and foremost would have a white-hot devotion to the Lord Himself. That if you will be motivated, encouraged to serve the church, to be active, it has to be predicated upon your love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Your deep passion for the Lord, your intimate relationship with Him. The fact that your life is a living sacrifice laid down for the Lord. You see, I can try... As a leader, as a minister, I can try to manipulate you to do things that I want you to do in this church. I can manipulate you to serve in the church by using motivational techniques. 
I can do this by cleverness or even charisma. That you're not following Jesus necessarily, but you're following a personality. A cult of personality, if you will. I can even manipulate you and get you to do things out of fear. There's all kinds of ways that leaders and sadly pastors can get their people to do things and to be a part and be an active part of the church. But I want the basis for everything that we do here today, taken from Romans chapter 12, to be from the place of white-hot devotion to the Lord. An absolute utter surrender, absolute utter giving and laying down of ourselves into the service of the Lord. There's no such thing as half-baked Christians. You're either all in or all out. Are there degrees of devotion as a Christian? Yes. Are there, are there uh, temptations to allow boredom and, and, and complacency to set into our lives? Yes. Are there times where in your moment, in this moment in your life, that maybe you were more devoted in times past? That's possible. But you're either committed to the Lord or not. And my desire is that you would be so committed, so devoted to the Lord, that he is, you have such a singleness of mind that you love Jesus so much, which is the head. And because you love Jesus so much, who is the head of his church, then you will do anything for the body. Because you love the head, you love the body. You cannot say you love the head and you do not love the body. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. So I want to get down to the foundation of the matter and that is us living as living sacrifices unto the Lord. When you look at the life of Paul, when he was on his way to persecute Christians on the Damascus Road, we know that in Acts 9, Jesus appeared to him in a bright, shining light and spoke directly to him. A, a, an amazing manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ. He spoke clearly and, and outwardly so that Paul could hear, he could see, and the result is that he was left in a stupor and he was blind. And all the men with him were absolutely amazed. And it was in this place that Paul was called out of his place of persecution of the church and called to service unto the Lord. But he was not transformed that day by the manifestation of Jesus in a bright light. He was not transformed alone by the manifestation of Jesus in a bright light. Many people saw Jesus in physical form and were never changed. Many people saw him do miracles and mighty works of supernatural wonder and signs and were never changed. It was not this marvelous light. It was not the manifestation of Jesus in form. And it was not the speaking of Jesus that changed his life. It was not the manifestation, but it was the revelation of Jesus Christ made real to his heart. He saw Jesus for who he was. And the same man who once was zealous for the law and made havoc on Christians by entering houses and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, was now a man 
who said in 1 Corinthians he is compelled and controlled by his love for Jesus, he is now a man zealous for the gospel of his Lord Jesus Christ. A man who once persecuted the church, he says this in Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I once was the source of suffering and persecution to the church. And then, and then the transforming power of Jesus Christ interjected into my life and it changed me from the inside out. And now, just as zealous as I was to persecute Christians, to persecute people who were disciples of Jesus Christ, now I am so zealous for that same Lord that I that I have the suffering of Jesus Christ in my very life. That is not, that is not, not a social religion. That is not some little club that you go to for an hour and say, I went to church. That is a life of giving and sacrifice and devotion. That is a life transformed by the revelation of Jesus Christ made real to him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. All of us are a part of the body of Christ, not because you're great, not because you had some money, or lack thereof, not because you have any particular talent or resource or because of your last name. You are in the body of Christ purely by the grace of God, his unmerited favor. His grace and his mercy has placed you supernaturally into the body of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask, is his grace towards some of us Extended in vain. The grace he offers to us, which places us in the body of Christ, is it offered to you in vain. First and foremost, even before you become a Christian, his offer to put you into the body of Christ, that grace which is offered to you, which shall save you by faith in Jesus Christ, he can, the offer is extended to many, many people and very few respond to it. But not just that. What about in your current place and position in your relationship with the Lord? He has provided to every one of us everything we need for victory, for service, to be a witness, everything. And is that extended to us? Is, is the offer placed on the table and he's on this side and I'm on that side and he's given me everything he can give to me? By faith in him, by his grace, he's given it to me. But it has he tried to give it to me in vain? And that I won't take it up and walk in it and receive it by faith. But Paul says, the grace of God was not toward me in vain. Both, both in salvation, but also, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. What compelled and controlled Paul 
to go from persecuting and throwing men and women into prison who were Christians, and he himself writing many of his, some of his letters in prison himself, was this surrendered and consecrated life to his Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is, here is really what I want us to understand here today. This, if, you don't listen, if you don't hear anything else, this, this is really the biggest point, the main point I'm trying to make here. You see, the Lord utilizes and leverages our weaknesses, our inadequacies and our shortcomings for his glory when it is accompanied by the absolute surrender of a humble vessel. But he cannot and will not use a prideful vessel. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if we can be utterly surrendered to the Lord, He will, we will be used in His kingdom as He so chooses. The Lord, your, your weaknesses and your inadequacies and your shortcomings, that is no problem for the Lord. He can leverage that and He can use that for His glory. As a matter of fact, if you happen to be rich in the top of your class, and have everything going for you and look really good, the Lord can still use you too. Because it's usually the lowly, the insignificant, the outcast that God uses because he gets greater glory from the lowly. He gets greater glory from those who have tons of inadequacies and tons of weaknesses in themselves. He can still use that. That is not a roadblock to the Lord using you. If it's a person who will simply humble themselves, he can do amazing, beautiful things with your life. Regardless of those supposed weaknesses, he sees that as an opportunity to show his glory all the greater in your life through your weaknesses. But he cannot use you in your pride. He cannot use you in your pride. So you don't have to worry about, oh God, can you use me? Will you use me? He will use you as long as you are that humbled, surrendered vessel. In the same way that this microphone is utterly surrendered into my hand and I can wield it as I want. And if this microphone had a mind of its own and it wanted to run away, I could not use it, could I? No way I could use it. But since it is utterly surrendered into my hand and I do with it as I please, it's doing its intended purpose and amplifying my voice so that you can hear it. And so the Lord wants you to be utterly surrendered into his hand. It is this useful state of humility as a raw lump of clay injected with humility which is then made moldable in the potter's hand. A life totally surrendered and consecrated on the altar of sacrifice. That is the life we have been called to. That is the life we've been called to. So now look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If I can draw some things out from this scripture. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I want you to understand he is beseeching, he is appealing to the people of God, and the word there, in my New King James Version, the fourth word there is therefore. 
That word therefore is a statement predicated upon previous statements. Therefore, in light of what I just said, Paul begins to go on in chapter 12. Paul is appealing to them on the basis of what he had just said in chapters 1 through 11. Therefore, chapter 12 is, therefore, in light of everything I just said in chapters 1 through 11, here is how you can apply this to your life. You see, when you read the Pauline epistles, that is the epistles written by Paul, he had a normal structure to his epistles, to his letters. Generally speaking, the first half was doctrine. It was theological truths. The second half was the practical application of those doctrinal truths. So Paul would take these lofty, deep, wonderful theological truths and doctrines, espouse them, declare them, teach them, and then in the second part of his letters he would say, okay, here is how you apply this to your life. Here is how you practice it. Here is what it looks like when you apply this doctrine, this teaching, this instruction to the Christian life. And Romans is just the same. Everything that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11 is setting him up for chapters 12 through 16. Chapters 12 through 16 is all about daily Christian living. Daily practical Christian living. Applying everything that was said in chapters 1 through 11. And chapters 1 through 11... Paul sets out some, some of the most marvelous theological truths that is unlike any other book of the New Testament. If you are a student of the Bible, you will understand exactly what I mean. Scholars call the book of Romans the Alps of the New Testament. It was the height of Paul's revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he revealed more than anything concerning the gospel in the book of Romans. And it was primarily chapters 1 through 11 where he touted these doctrines and this revelation he had received from the Lord Jesus. And that is the basis and premise upon which he begins chapter 12. But just as a matter of fact, just to express to you the loftiness, the greatness of the book of Romans, okay, which many of the, the truths that you and I espouse for Christian doctrine are many of those things are taken from the book of Romans. The course of Christian history was changed by the book of Romans when a man called Martin Luther, when he discovered that it is those who are of faith are justified. That you are justified by faith and not by works. It's when a man rediscovered the word and primarily reading the book of Romans, Martin Luther started a reformation. A reformation. We started the Protestantism or the Protestant Reformation. But just listen to this very, 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 very closely. Martin Luther praised Romans as it is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Luther's successor, Philip Melanthron, called Romans the compendium of Christian doctrine. John Calvin said of the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Samuel, Samuel Coleridge, English poet and literary critic, said Paul's letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. Frederick 
Godet, 19th century Swiss theologian, called the Book of Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. And Richard Linsky wrote that the Book of Romans is beyond question the most dynamic of all New Testament letters, even as it was written at the climax of Paul's apostolic career. And so therefore, in light of everything I just expressed to you in chapters 1 through 11, therefore, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. If you were to summarize chapters 1 through 11, it would be this, God's mercy. That is the prevailing theme. That is the summary of the first part of this wonderful Alps of the New Testament called the book of Romans. God's mercy. God's mercy. The call to action in chapter 12, beginning in chapter 12 for Christian living, all the way to chapter 16, are rooted and built on the truths of chapters 1 through 11. Paul is saying, you can sink your roots in these things and Christian fruit will be produced in your life. This is the foundation you can build on. And he sums up the foundation with the phrase, the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that's what sums up the first half of the book of Romans. The mercies of God. God has been merciful to us through the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because of Christ, those who believe in Him are justified by faith and reconciled to God and have the hope of everlasting joy. And so there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who, has, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The summary of the first part of Romans is God has been merciful to you. You are an enemy of God. You are a wretch. You are a sinner. You had transgressed the law of God. You were not a child of God. You were not a counterpart to God. You are an absolute enemy to the Lord. And in light of His mercies, I beseech you, I appeal to you, in light of what the Lord has brought you out of, in light of the miry clay He has brought you out of, in light of, in light of Him delivering you from sin, in light of Him delivering you from drug addiction, in light of Him delivering you from a broken marriage, in light of Him delivering you from addiction, in light of His great and marvelous mercy that is lauded in the first part of Romans, I appeal to you by the mercies of God so you therefore present yourselves as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you. It's interesting that Paul does not say, I command you. That word there, I beseech you or I appeal to you, is very different from the word command. And furthermore, he endears himself to the people by calling them brothers. The very, the very spirit, and, and, and there's a certain winsomeness in the way he approaches this, in that he is endearing himself on the same level, though he could espouse apostolic authority and command them to live lives of holiness and sacrifice, he is saying, I'm, he's getting next to them and saying, I'm a fellow brother of yours, and I plead with you, 
Give your life utterly and completely to the Lord in light of his marvelous mercies, which I have just lauded. And so it is, it is the spirit of graciousness and mercy that he's pleading with the people. Don't you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, he says earlier in the book of Romans. And, and, and so when you read verses 3 through 8, how, how that we're supposed to respond and act to people, that we are supposed to be ministers of mercy then. That we ourselves are supposed to take on the, the image of Jesus Christ, the nature and spirit of Jesus Christ, and we ourselves are to walk in this same spirit of mercy and graciousness and bring wholeness and wellness to every person we come in contact with. But before you can give and be a minister of mercy, you first have to come to the place of worship. And that's where he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. This word present is hailing back to the Old Testament where the people of Israel would present a sin sacrifice, whether it be a dove, a bull, a goat, a lamb, whatever it was, that they would present, that they would bring, they would get this spotless, blameless sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice and bring it to the high priest, bring it to the temple, and that they would make propitiation for their sins. And it was, it was this sin sacrifice that they would present to the high priest that would remind them of their sin and the penalty of sin. And so with the coming of Jesus Christ, he once and for all has been the sin sacrifice. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to come up here and lay a lamb down and sacrifice it unto the Lord. Judaism was a very bloody religion. A lot of animals were killed because of sin. It was a reminder of our sin, and it was merely something that allowed us to, to be reminded of our sin and make atonement for our sin. But the ultimate, the ultimate sinless, blameless Lamb of God came in the form of Jesus Christ, and once for all, he laid his life down and his blood was spilt once and for all so that no other blood has to be spilled. That of, uh, of, of lambs and goats and turtle doves, nothing else has to be spilled. His blood once and for all was spilled. So Jesus presented his own self and he laid down his own life because he loves you and he hates sin. He hates something that's inside of somebody he loves so much and that is sin. And because of the judgment of sin, which is death, he died upon the cross and took it upon himself. And now all he's simply saying, in light of this marvelous mercy, in light of this free gift, in light of you not having to do anything to justify yourself by works, but merely by faith, the most reasonable response of any wise individual is that I now will lay my life down for him. I now will present myself not as a sacrifice to be killed because Jesus himself was the final sacrifice. And no blood of bulls and goats can make any man righteous. But now through the blood of Jesus Christ, I can present myself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. 
and lay my life down in a place of humility and with all my weakness and my inadequacies in my past and my shortcomings, he can make something beautiful out of me. He can still use me. All he wants is somebody to be a willing vessel, an individual to be utterly surrendered, absolutely surrendered in the hand of the master potter, that you would have a spirit of humility and you say, God, do with me whatever you want because my life is not my own. I've been purchased with the price and that price is the very blood of Jesus Christ. Everything I do, outwardly, my physical body, my spirit, Everything I do must be centered around how can I bring glory to my Lord and Savior who died for me? How can I lay my life down? How can I live in such a way that Jesus is seen in me? That my life can bring glory and pleasure to the one who died for me? You see... It's not the look of your body that the Lord is pleased with. And some of us say, thank you, Lord. It is not that the Lord is looking for a muscular physique, perfect symmetry of the face, muscular build. He's not looking upon your physical stature in your body, but he is looking at the actions of your body. And the beauty of your body, your physical body, which houses your spirit, the beauty of your body is most seen, not in the gym lifting weights, but when you, in the same spirit and likeness of Christ, are laying, laying your life down. The most grotesque and wretchedness of physical nature that Jesus found himself in was upon the cross. We could not behold him. We could not look upon him. He did not even look like a man beaten to a pulp. There was no beauty that we could look upon in his physical body. But there was nothing, there was no greater beauty in the actions of his body than when he was laid upon the cross willingly. This act of mercy, willful act of mercy, that in his body the beauty the beauty of the mercy of the Lord was seen. It is the same way with you. That in your body, the actions of your body, the beauty of the Lord is seen. Doesn't matter what the scale says. Doesn't matter how big your waistline is or small it is. Doesn't matter. The Lord doesn't care about that. The outward expression of your body. He cares about the expression of your body, which houses your spirit. Many of you know how much I love my wife. And she is beautiful outwardly. And even more so, though, she is beautiful inwardly. I am never more attracted to my wife than when I see her ministering to people. And if you've ever been ministered to by my wife, you know exactly what I mean. When you see her in her compassion and love for people, in the way that she expresses and ministers to people, I just sit there and watch her in awe. I really do. I really do. 
That is extremely attractive to me. And on top of that, an added bonus is she's beautiful outwardly. I appreciate that, Lord. God is not looking for models of muscle, but models of mercy. He wants to see. He wants to see the Spirit of Christ expressed through your life. And that you take the mercy of God, this great mercy that you've experienced for yourself, and that you present your body as a living sacrifice so that now you can be used as a minister of mercy, that you can be used to glorify the person of Jesus Christ. I'm coming to a close here. Romans chapter 6, Paul earlier in the book of Romans discussing the nature of sin and its dominion over us. In verse 13, he says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is the exact same word that he just used in Romans 12. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And verse 17 says this, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, that is the great mercy and grace of God taking effect in my life, you then became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The individual who lives without God, who is a sinner, they are dominated and governed by sin, by the appetites of their carnal nature. And there is no fruitfulness in their lives. Though they're free in regards to the commands of the Lord, they have no fruitfulness unto the Lord, and the end result is death. But now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You once were squandering your life away in the miriness of sin and the dregs of sin and the fruitfulness of your life was producing death. And now, you being slaves of righteousness, your life shall produce righteousness and eventually eternal life. And this only comes by the presentation of your body the presentation of your spirit, the absolute and utter surrender of yourself as a living sacrifice 
All of this predicated, all of this motivated by, oh God, I love you because you first loved me. I can love you because you first loved me. I, I can love people because you love me. I can be a minister of mercy because I've experienced your mercy. And now I'm fully and absolutely devoted to you. Steve, if you could come help me. And he follows up verse 1 with verse 2 by saying, And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how do I become a living sacrifice? What does it look like? It looks like that. Not being conformed to the dictates of this world. Not conforming yourself to the works of the carnal nature. Not conforming yourself and loving this world. You cannot be a living sacrifice. You cannot love God and love the world at the same time. You cannot love righteousness and love sin at the same time. Do not say that you love God, but you still love your sin. Do we stumble in many areas? Yes. Do we have sanctification and growing to be done? Yes. But whatever God places His, his finger on in your life, we ought to hate it. We ought to hate it with the same passion that He hates it because we love Him so much. And so He's saying, do not be conformed to this world. Everything of this world is described to us in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If, anything, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but uh, is of the world. And this really summarizes what the world is. Do not be conformed. Do not love. Do not have affection for the world. What is the world, this present age? It is composed of the lust of the flesh. It is everything that appears to you, everything that appeals to you and to the appetites of your carnal nature. Another aspect of the world is the lust of the eyes. That is materialism or covetousness. That is longing and desiring and always never having enough and always wanting more. The lust of the eyes, always looking and never being satisfied and fulfilled and content in what you currently have. And the world is also comprised of the pride of life. That is, ambitions which puff us up and puts us on the throne room of our own lives. He's saying, do not love the world. Do not be conformed to the world. But conversely, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And you do that primarily by the Word of God. Your mind is renewed and transformed, not by the words of men, but by the word of God. It is continually, continually being refreshed, rejuvenated, corrected, encouraged, instilled with the truth of God. The Holy Spirit wrote the word of God. This is God-breathed. I saw a quote the other day, I think on Facebook, and it said, don't say God is not talking to you when your Bible is still closed. Don't say God doesn't talk to me when your Bible is still closed. This is not just a book. 
This is the Word of God that corrects and conforms us to truth because it is truth. And you cannot understand the Word of God except with Jesus Christ. It only makes sense with Jesus Christ who is the Word made manifest, who is our ultimate example and for whom we lay our lives down, giving yourself continually over to the things above and not the things below, humbling yourself, allowing yourself to be a moldable piece of clay, injected with humility, allowing the master potter to do with you as he wants because you have this white-hot devotion unto the Lord. Would you stand with me?